1775, the colonial militia and the British militia met in one of the early battles of the Revolutionary War, the Battle for Bunker Hill. At this point, the colonists, they had been trying to siege Boston, a really important trade city at the time. And while they were trying to carry out the siege, they heard a rumor that the British troops, or the British leadership, I should say, were going to try to occupy two of these unfortified hills, Bunker Hill and Breed's Hill. Because in controlling those two hills, it meant that they would control Boston Harbor. And if you control Boston Harbor, you control the city of Boston itself. And so not wanting to let the British troops get control of Breed's and Bunker Hill, the colonial troops under the cover of darkness went and they fortified these two hills. Now, the next morning when the British troops saw what the colonial militia had done, they started to attack them. And through a series of three successive attacks, they ended up uh, beating the colonial militia and causing them to retreat over Bunker's Hill to back to Cambridge. Now, the British, they got what they wanted. They got their end goal, right? Those two hills to control Boston Harbor. They were the victors. But at what cost? See, when historians look at the Battle of Bunker Hill, they, uh, they call it a Pyrrhic victory. Anybody ever heard that term, a Pyrrhic victory? A Pyrrhic victory is uh, a kind of victory that, that uh, inflicts such a devastating toll on the victors that it may as well have been a defeat. It may be a simpler definition. It's an empty victory. I mean, just think about what happened or what the aftermath of the, bunk, the Battle of Bunker Hill was. The British troops lost a significant amount of militia and a great number of officers, especially compared to the American troops. The Battle of Bunker Hill proved that this insignificant little colonial militia that was completely inexperienced could stand toe-to-toe with the very experienced British regulars. The Battle of Bunker Hill, it proved that the British Army, they could not use their regular tactics, their traditional army tactics, or at least they would have to use them far less. Though the Americans lost the Battle of Bunker Hill, it ended up helping them a whole lot more than it hurt them, but for the British... It was a Pyrrhic victory, totally empty. In our gospel for this morning, we heard about a great battle that was waged in the Judean desert. Immediately after Jesus was baptized, the Spirit whisked him away into the wilderness to be tempted, to be tempted by Satan. Now, this was just one battle in the stage of many battles that had long been waged in the war against sin, a war that had been going on since the Garden of Eden. And there in that desert, Satan tempted Jesus with three big temptations. He tempted him to be an ungrateful son, to be a disloyal son, and to be a distrustive son. All in ways, Jesus was tempted in ways that you and I are tempted, but with one difference, that Jesus won. Jesus did not give in to Satan's temptations, and he came out of that desert victorious. This past week was Ash Wednesday, which marks the start of the beginning of Lent, of our 40-day walk to the cross with Jesus. And the cross is ultimately where Jesus enters the final battle in this war against our greatest enemies, sin, death, and the devil. Jesus entered into this battle against these greatest enemies, and he gave up his life for us. He gave up his life, and three days later, we know that he rose victoriously from the dead to show us what? To show us that sin could not hold him, that death could not defeat him, and the devil could not vanquish him. He did that to prove to us that he was the victor. And this has huge implications for us in our life as Christians. It means that we have the forgiveness of sins. It means that we are heirs to God's kingdom of grace. It means 
that the gates of heaven are now open for us in such a way that they weren't before. They are open to us purely by grace. This is a truth that we all cling to in our hearts. It's a truth that we hear every single Sunday. It's a truth that we confess, a truth that we believe, that Christ was victorious. But then there come those moments when the hard reality of living in a sinful world confronts us. Those times when what Paul writes about in Romans chapter 8 happen in very real ways, like when family hardships come that cause us a great amount of distress. When a medical diagnosis comes that compounds an already difficult life lived in a broken and sinful world. Or the days when you are attacked in subtle or sometimes not so subtle ways for who you are and whose you are being attacked for being a child of God and for taking a stand on the objective truth of the word of God. Or there are the days when, will you experience what my friends in Texas experienced this past week? They got this crazy, I mean, you all know about the snowstorm down there, right? Um, They got this crazy, unprecedented winter weather. And I, I have a number of friends, one in Houston, one in Austin, both pastors down there, and they lost power which meant they had no heat. One of my friend's house when he woke up was 35 degrees. Their pipes froze, so they had no running water. At one point, a friend of mine, he sent me a picture. You know those big deep fryer boiling pots? They went and they were just scooping snow into the boiling pot or into that pot, putting it over the propane heat just to boil water so they'd have something to drink. And still today, he's without power. He felt completely destitute. No idea what he was going to do. And you wonder sometimes, if the harsh realities of living in a sinful world, if if they really can do what Paul is asking in that question, if they can separate us from the love of Jesus. I mean, everything that Paul writes in Romans chapter 8, he writes from firsthand experience. He says this, Can anyone or anything separate us from the love of Jesus? Can trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? I mean, read through any of Paul's letters and you see that he experienced all of this. And he writes about this both to the Christians in Rome and to you and me because he knows that we face the danger of when those things happen to us in this life, we are tempted to think that they can actually separate us from the love of Jesus. And sometimes we do a good job of understanding what Paul says later in the letter that nothing can separate us from the love of Jesus. But for those moments when we do think that they can happen or they're coming as a result of a punishment from God for something that we did, that these things, the trouble, the hardship, the the persecution, the danger, the nakedness, the famine, the sword, when we do think that those things can separate us from the love of Jesus, do you understand implicitly what we are saying about the victory that Jesus won on the cross? We know what that victory means. Right, that it gives us the forgiveness of sins and life that knows no end. But then we feel like some days there's a dichotomy between Christ's victory and the hardships that we face. And if we think that they can actually separate us from the love of Jesus, then what we have done is turn Christ's victory on the cross into a Pyrrhic victory. Into a victory that is completely empty. I wish I could say that I've never felt like that. But I have on more than one occasion in my short life. And for those moments when I am, when I do give in to that temptation to think that Christ's victory is a Pyrrhic victory and has no real meaning for my day-to-day life when I face 
the harsh reality of a broken and sinful world and all of the hardships that Satan can throw at me, I find an immense amount of joy in what Paul lays out in Romans chapter 8. An immense amount of joy. Because he's, he lays out, can anything separate us from the love of Christ? He makes that whole list, that whole long list of, what is it, like eight or nine things? And then he says this, can anything separate us from the love of Christ? No. Because in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. He doesn't just say, I am a conqueror, that Paul overcame all of these things and therefore was better for it. He says, we, you and I, are more than conquerors. Unfortunately, though, that that word conquerors is kind of a weak conveyance of what Paul is actually trying to get at. Um, I totally get what modern English translations are doing when they say the word conquerors, but it can be a little misunderstood, can't it? I mean, think about the British at the Battle of Bunker Hill. They were conquerors, right? But when they took stock of everything that had happened to them at the Battle of Bunker Hill, do you think they felt like conquerors or do you think they felt like they were Pyrrhic conquerors, empty conquerors? I think the same thing can be said about you and I in this life. Paul promises that we are more than conquerors through him who loved us, but then, but then we face any number of those things that happen in our day-to-day lives. And we can kind of feel like we are Pyrrhic conquerors. And that's just talking about the physical, Paul's just talking about the physical hardship. That's not even to mention the, the spiritual struggles we have. On the days when we are conquerors, are conquerors and we conquer the temptation that Satan tries to throw us, that we actually succeed in living the kind of sanctified life that Jesus calls us to live, the kind of life that says yes to Jesus and says no to sin, that can feel like kind of a Pyrrhic victory, a Pyrrhic conquering, because right around the corner is waiting Satan with yet another temptation, and we all know what our hearts are like and how often we actually give in to those temptations. Yeah, I think conquerors is maybe a poor conveyance of the word that Paul uses. I think a better translation would be hyper-victor. Maybe in words that we use every single day, that we are completely and utterly victorious. He says that we, it, we, have the, we are and we have the complete opposite of what a Pyrrhic victory is. That we are victors in a way that goes above and beyond what victory is. We, are, we have a victory that is ours, that is beyond understanding. We have a victory that always prevails. And now the question naturally arises, how can that be? How can we be victorious like that? Well, Paul, he actually answers that question through a series of rhetorical questions in Romans chapter 8, questions he doesn't want us to answer, but simply lays out the truth for us. Number one, Paul says we are completely, uh, we are completely and utterly victorious because if God is for us, who can be against us? Right, Paul is saying God is completely powerful. There is no one and nothing in this world or in heaven who is more powerful than he is. And when we face our enemies, and we have enemies, both physical and spiritual, when we face our enemies, we have a God on our side who fights for us, who is completely victorious. And when those enemies stand in the face of the Almighty God, they are rendered completely powerless. And therefore, they have no power to separate you from the love of Jesus. Number two, Paul says you are completely victorious because if he who did not give up his own or did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him, with Jesus, graciously give us all things? Jesus, he was sentenced to die a gruesome death and suffer a literal hell by his father for us. 
You notice how many times Paul uses that in this in this uh, section? It's a ton. It's like eight, nine times he uses us or we. God gave his son up for us. God gave up everything for us to give everything to us. Because just think about what it is that Jesus' death on the cross means for us. Jesus' death on the cross means that we have a forgiveness of sins that lasts. Jesus' death on the cross means that Satan is vanquished. Jesus' death on a cross means that we have a relationship with our God that is made right, not by who we are and what we do, but, but by what God has done for us. And if God is willing to give that to us, if he is willing to give us the thing that we could never do on our own, how much more is he going to be willing to give us everything else, to give us an intimate relationship with him, to bless us spiritually in ways that we can't even under, begin to fathom? And not just spiritual blessings, he gives us physical blessings too, Blessings to sustain our body and life here in this world as God works out his will in our lives and works out his will for this world through our lives. If God is for us, there's absolutely nothing that can separate our love or us from his love because he gave us his only son. Number three, Paul says we are completely victorious because who can bring any charge against God's elect? This is a long, this is a, a rather turgid way of saying that the case that was once held against you is totally and completely closed. That there is no one who could ever bring a charge against you because it is God who justified you. Remember that justification, it's this legal term that means God has declared you not guilty of your sins. And Satan, the, our whole lives will constantly be trying to bring charges against us. To go before God and to say, look at all of the things that these people have done how they have turned their back on you, how they have constantly worshipped others, how they have served themselves selfishly instead of serving you and their neighbor in love. But all of those pleas for condemnation, they all fall on deaf ears because God has long ago closed the case on you. And he said, you are declared not guilty. And the reason for that, the reason you are declared not guilty is actually found in his answer to the fourth rhetorical question. Look at what he says in Romans chapter 8. He says, Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died, more than that who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. You know what condemnation means? It means to suffer a literal death in hell. And Paul says there's no one who can do that. There's now, he says earlier in Romans chapter 5, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for those who have been given a faith in the one true God, who have been given faith in Jesus as their Savior. Death is no longer something that we need to fear because Christ our Savior was completely and utterly victorious over the things that would bring a sentence of condemnation over us, over sin, right? And now that Savior, who was completely victorious over sin and death and the devil, he now is seated at the right hand of God. Not a location, but a position of power and authority. And it is from the right hand of God. It's from the right hand of God that Jesus hears and he answers your prayers. It is from the right hand of God. The right hand of God where he offers you compassion and comfort for all of the moments when you suffer hardship, persecution, and trouble and distress. It is from the right hand of God where Jesus serves as this beacon of the Father's love before the Father himself. 
to show that the wrath over sin is satisfied and the forgiveness of sins is yours. What a beautiful thing. This is a very formulaic way of Paul saying that Christ's victory for you is anything but Pyrrhic. It is a complete and total victory. And because you have been given faith in your Savior Jesus, that also means you are co-heirs together with Jesus of everything that is his and everything that God has given to his son. And so this means that the victory that is complete and total by God's son is also your complete and total victory. And no matter what Satan tries to do to tempt you, no matter how much Satan rages, no matter how much power Satan tries to use against you, Paul shows you all of this to show you that nothing can separate you from his love. I mean, this is what we just sang about, right, in the third stanza of that hymn. Though devils all the world should fill, all eager to devour us, we tremble not, we fear no ill, they shall not overpower us. The prince of darkness still may scowl fierce as he will. He can harm us none. He's judged, the deed is done, one little word can fell him. I mean, that's, that's Luther's summary of what Paul is talking about here. There is nothing that can separate you from the love of Jesus, not the power of Satan or anything else in this world. Because you are the ones whom God has chosen from the beginning to be his own. You are the ones for whom his son was completely victorious. You are the ones to whom God gives you this victory. You are completely victorious. Now, if you're like me, you still have that question sticking in your craw. That question, well, that's great that I know that about my spiritual enemies, but what about all the physical stuff that Paul mentions in in Romans chapter 8, the persecution and the hardship and the trouble and the, the famine and the nakedness and the danger and the sword? What about all of that? Well, Jesus, you're completely and utterly victorious Savior, has an answer for that too. On Holy Thursday, on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he's speaking with his disciples before he goes to the cross, and he says this. He says, in this world, you all have trouble. Do you know what that is? That's the promise that sometimes life in a world that is broken and sinful is just going to suck. Sometimes life just sucks. There are moments and even long seasons in life that are filled with untold terribleness and hardship and suffering that are beyond what words can really describe. And all of that is compounded by the fact of who we are, that we are Christ followers, that we are a people who have picked up our crosses and follow Jesus and that the world hates. Jesus doesn't say this to scare you. He said this to his disciples and to you and me so that we would understand what it is in this world that we are going to, that we are going to face. That in this world we will have trouble and that sometimes life will just suck. But he doesn't leave us hanging on a cliffhanger, does he? He says, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart. I've overcome the world. That word that, word that Jesus uses for overcome it's a variation on the same word that Paul calls you. Completely and utterly victorious. So when Jesus says, take heart, I have overcome the world, he's not just saying he's overcome it. He's saying he's completely and totally overcome anything. He's completely and totally victorious over anything that you could possibly face in this life that you think could separate you from your Savior. 
what he's saying to you is you will see your enemy walking around trying to use all of the bad stuff that happens in this life to try to separate you from my love and from me. But none of it will work. Not a single thing. Because I am totally victorious over it. Completely victorious. And Paul picks up on this notion from Jesus and he sprints with it to the finish line of the climax of this first half of the letter to the Romans. He says, who shall be able to separate us from the love of Christ? Nothing. For in all these things, we are completely and utterly victorious through him who loves us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future nor any powers, neither the height nor the depth or anything else, will be able to separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. You are completely and utterly victorious. And I pray, fervently pray, that you bask in that truth. That because Christ was victorious, that no matter what you face in this world, spiritual or physical, that you're victorious over it because your Savior was. Let these words be your strength and your comfort. Let them be your hope and your assurance. Let them be your anthem as you continue to walk toward the shores of heaven that nothing can separate you from the love of God because for you fights the valiant one whom God himself elected. You ask who this may be? Christ Jesus, it is he, the almighty Lord, and there's no other God. He holds the field completely victorious for you forever. Amen.